Good morning. Well, Luke, in Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus set his face like hardened flint rock towards Jerusalem. And from that point on in Luke's gospel, the the narrative shows Jesus making his way there because he knows that his final purpose in having come from the Father lies in what's going to take place there. And so for the last several weeks, our series here at the end of Luke has been looking at Jesus' final purpose in detail as we've taken a close look at the final week of his life before the crucifixion and the resurrection. Last week we looked at Jesus as the new Adam, the second Adam, who succeeded in overcoming the temptations of the serpent, Satan, in all the places where every other Adam and every other Eve has fallen since Genesis 3 took place. And this morning, we'll look at another question. Young Christians, young theologians, this is the same question for you as I have for the adults this morning. And it's this. How did Peter, a fallen son of Adam not become a son of the serpent like Judas did, even though their sin was so much alike. This is the good news of a Savior who loves us with a full grace, a holistic love, even when we love Him in slices. And this love is more than enough to snatch us from the mouth of the serpent And we find it in the Gospel of Luke, the physician, chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, and then we'll skip to verse 47 through 62. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. 
And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. The word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you, by your Spirit, through your word, would reach into our hearts with your truth, shining the light of it in our hearts and minds as each one needs to hear it, helping us understand the passage, but also helping us understand what we should do with it today, this week, how we should receive it by faith and then very specifically and particularly apply it by faith to various needs in our life, various things with which we struggle in our life. God, we need your wisdom for this. We need your enlightenment to understand your word, and we need your enlightenment to follow your word and apply your word. We rest upon you for all these things. And so please, for your own glory and the good of your people, do them. In the name of Jesus and by the Spirit, amen. You can be seated. Stephanie, Joanne, Angelina, Germanata. You might know that name. But if you don't, it's more likely that you've heard her stage name, her performance name of Lady Gaga. Many have called Lady Gaga the new Madonna for the millennial generation, although that's a comparison that I'm not really sure she would own for herself. She's known for using shocking dress, almost psychedelic performances, scandalous lyrics, certainly, to broadcast her message. And she's one of the most popular music artists on the charts today. She has been for a while. I'll confess that last week I decided to take a long walk through my neighborhood And I sampled several of her representative songs, several representative songs, I should say, from all of her albums to kind of get an idea of what her recurring messages are. She's definitely good at shock value, no question. I'm sure I probably turned red with embarrassment a few times during my walk, I don't know. Her songs repeatedly assume a nihilistic or nihilistic reality The idea that that life is basically purposeless, there's no ultimate truths, and so it's open for you to reach for pleasure or meaning, however you define it. She's been hurt a lot in her past, really, really deeply, in ways I will not go into here, and that pain comes across a lot. But so does her genius. And this isn't to recommend her songs. In fact, I'd probably recommend that you do not add her to your regular Spotify playlist. 
especially to any playlist that you've entitled Safe for the Whole Family. Don't add her to that playlist. But several years ago, she wrote a song entitled Judas, intending a reference to the biblical character. The chorus line that keeps repeating says, I'm just a holy fool. Oh baby, he's so cruel, but I'm still in love with Judas. And not surprisingly, the forces of hedonism, moral relativism in our culture, they loved it. Yeah, Judas, he stuck it to the man, and we should stick it to the man like Judas did. He's so bad, and that's what made him so cool. But that's not what she's saying. And as you'd imagine, the family values police freaked out, calling for protests and boycotts of all kinds. Look at the times we're living in. We're now telling people, children, even that loving Judas is better than loving Jesus. But that's not what she's saying either. The song isn't a celebration of Judas. It might be in the form of intense dance music, that's for sure. But it's not a call for us to throw in our lot with the bad guy, come what may. It's not a celebration. It's a lament. When asked about the song and its meaning, and of course she has been several times, Gaga said that the song is a metaphor for how she often finds herself going back to the same sources of pain, the same bad relationships, the same bad decisions she has made in the past, even though she knows their destructive power. During one interview, she said, I sing about what a holy fool I am, that although moments in my life are so cruel and relationships can be so cruel, I'm still in love with Judas. I still go back again to those evil things. One vulnerable moment in the song has her singing, I want to love you, but something's pulling me away from you. Jesus is my virtue, but Judas is the demon I cling to. And what our message from Luke tells us this morning is that instead of condemning this song, Christians should have, with a few modifications, been the first to write it. And in fact, through the pens of the apostles, we did. Last, last week we spoke about how the history of humanity is the history of all of us walking in the steps of our father, Adam, repeating his failure to resist the temptation of the serpent every day. Sunday through Saturday is Genesis 3 again and again for all of us. We saw it in the failure of the disciples to stay alert and pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane We saw it in their failure to accept God's will for suffering and sacrifice. And instead they turned to violence and force to get their own way. To fight the enemy with swords. But then we watched Jesus. The second Adam. Succeed where every other Adam has failed. 
He resists the temptation to part ways with his father's will in the garden. And he resists violence and self-preservation when the crowds arrive to arrest him. And he does it all for us because we would never do it for ourselves. We watched Adam's following in their father's steps. We watched a second Adam doing what the first Adam should have done, but didn't. But we also watched some follow after the serpent. Judas. Judas doesn't just fall. He doesn't just fail. He becomes a very agent of deception. The kiss of betrayal. It should recall to our minds other kisses from Luke's gospel, like the many kisses of the forgiven woman in Luke chapter 7. She was most likely a former prostitute who wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and perfume, and she can't stop kissing the feet of the one who saved her from her sins. And Judas, on the outside, does something similar. He kisses Jesus for all to see. But Jesus knows better that the kiss is intended for something very opposite of what the forgiven woman intends. Judas is under the power of the serpent. He's following the serpent, doing serpentine things. And And the serpent has always excelled at taking actions and speaking words and expressing tone that all appear very righteous very wise, very well intended when they're actually something else. And much like Judas, the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders of verse 52, they're serpents too. Their hearts are so deceived by their own sense of self-righteousness, their own sense of having been wronged by this man, that they now get to bring justice upon that they're now doing everything that they do in the dark. Under a cloak of deception, under the powers of darkness, as Jesus says in verse 53. It's biblical passages like these that most likely inspired Martin Luther, the great reformer, to say, hey, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. And he wasn't, of course, encouraging sin. But what he was saying was this, hey, bold, honest sin, self-aware sin that knows what it is, at least has a chance of being confessed and repented of. But deceptive self-righteousness has no hope. And as a parent, I mean, I get this. I'd much rather my daughter shake her fist in my face and challenge my authority than be sneaky and try to manipulate me emotionally and hide what she's doing. I'll just let you know, sneaky gets you a higher sentence in the burger nation. It always has. It did with my parents and it does in my house. Because as long as my children are honest Adams and Eves, I have hope for their confession and repentance and restoration. But serpents are beyond hope. Unless they become 
honest Adams and Eves again. And that's the question, isn't it? That's the question that's staring at us from the first and the third paragraphs in our bulletin this morning. I mean, Luke, alone of the gospel writers, tells us of Satan's role in Peter's denial in verse 31. And it begs the question still more then. With with Satan so closely related to both Judas and Peter's role in this narrative, wherein lies the difference between these men? I mean, they both turn their back on Christ. One through betrayal, seeking financial gain. The other through denial, seeking his own security. But, I mean, surely there's no real difference between these things. I mean, they might be different idols, but they're both still idols. So why does Judas' heart remain in love with the serpent and Peter's heart, as we know, doesn't? We'll come back to that in a moment. But let's first take a look more closely at this whole attempt of Satan to sift Peter like wheat. Remember, that's what Jesus told Peter Satan wanted in verse 31. And as one commentator notes, it's the picture of of a head of grain in a sieve where it's taken apart. It's, It's a lot like saying, Peter, Satan's asked to take you apart, to pick you to pieces. And Jesus says he's prayed for Peter that his faith may not fail. And the Greek for fail in verse 32, it means to disappear, to drain away to nothing. Jesus is praying that Peter will not completely lose faith, never to repent or return to Christ again. And in the same breath, Jesus predicts that Peter will return, and not only that, but strengthen the faith of his brothers as well. But even after this, it's clear where Peter takes his stand. Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. I'm not sure what this is all about. I'm not sure what the need for all this stuff is. Look, I'm ready right now. I'll follow you to prison, arrest, and then to death after that if I have to. Peter's not listening. He he takes his stand on himself, his own commitment, his own abilities and capacities, at least as he thinks he possesses them. And Jesus leaves him with the chilling prediction of his denial. And only a mere few hours later, it happens. Beginning in verse 54. Beginning in verse 54, Jesus' excuse me, Luke's telling of this account sees the pressure on Peter mount. And Luke's method for showing this increased pressure is shown in the accusations themselves. The first accusation comes from a servant girl, someone who in that society wouldn't even be considered a valid witness in a court of law. She starts the accusation. She accuses Peter of being with Jesus. Hers is an accusation of of guilt by association. And Peter's response to the servant girl, it's swift and it's clear. Woman, I I do not know him. Daryl Bach, who's a well-known New Testament scholar, he's a good authority on Luke's writings, 
Daryl Bach helps us by noting that Peter's words here sound just like the Jewish ban formulas used against those dismissed from the synagogue. In other words, the irony is that while Jesus is being tried by those who have ultimate authority over all synagogues and the temple of worldwide Judaism, those who will not only cast Jesus out but cry for his death, while they're doing that inside the house, Jesus' most outspoken disciple is saying similar words about him just outside in the courtyard. The second accusation in verse 58, however, comes from an adult man, someone of greater legal importance in that time. And his words go beyond a guilt by loose association to one of active participation. You're one of them. You're, you're one of those who, who shares Jesus' views and teachings and purposes. And Peter quickly dismisses it. But the third accuser in the next verse is quite insistent. He won't let it go. And he's he's ready to present evidence for his charge. Certainly, this man was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter's accent and clothing most likely gave away his affiliation with northern Israel, which is, of course, where Jesus was from. This man is essentially accusing Peter of being a Yankee, a carpetbagger, present at a late evening fire in the southern capital. This this man is essentially saying, why would a guy from Galilee even be here unless he was a supporter of the man being tried in there? And it's at this point that Peter fulfills Jesus' prophecy to the letter. He denies Christ for a third time, and even as the words are leaving his mouth, the rooster crows in the distance. We have this passage in front of us, not so that we can feel bad for Peter, Not so that we can have some sort of history behind Peter's remarkable transformation that's going to take place in the book of Acts, although we have that. Luke gives us this account to make every Christian very aware of something. Just as the world believes that it has the right to hold court on Jesus, to pass judgment on who he is, they will also hold court on you. Right here, in this passage, Peter experiences in one night what all Christians have experienced throughout history, as Colin alluded to earlier. As we all experience throughout our lives, and it comes down to one question. What do you do when those around you ask you to own up to the whole Jesus? Because it's, it's, it's at that point, isn't it? It's at that point that the heat is turned up. Because, I mean, no one has a problem with Jesus and slices. 
I mean, that, that's actually the only reason Jesus is still popular. The only reason Jesus is still popular is because people look down at their favorite slice of Jesus on their plate and think to themselves, yep, that's how I like my Jesus. And so, for instance, for example, you can have socialism Jesus, the champion of the poor who's used to promote the redistribution of wealth, That is, until you take into account the Jesus who said to the younger brother who's coming to him complaining, wanting Jesus to settle an inheritance dispute with his rich older brother, and Jesus turns to him and says, Man, who made me an arbitrator over you? Watch out for your own covetousness. But then we have the the favorite slice of the free market Jesus over here who who supposedly lines up behind every right-wing view on non-government interference in the economy until you start to plumb the depths of Jesus' words, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what belongs to God. And in fact, that statement alone helps us understand that any time Jesus weighs in on our relationship to money, In Scripture, he has much loftier goals than helping us figure out an economic system. He cares about something much deeper to your heart than that. Many social and ethnic minority groups will paint a picture of Jesus as the social radical, the political agitator who approves of violent rebellion for the sake of gaining social freedoms. Unless you remember that some of his closest disciples were zealots. They were Jews who were oppressed for their race and for their religion by the Roman Empire. And they were wanting and willing to carry out all kinds of political rebellion for their cause. And what does Jesus say to them? Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Ever since the European Enlightenment, white, liberal, middle, upper class Europeans and North Americans have presented us with another slice of Jesus. We'll call him bourgeois Jesus. A Jesus who's only quoted when he's talking about love. And even those quotes are taken out of context a lot. A Jesus who believes love means Live and let live. The Jesus of individualism. You live your life the way you want, and I'll do the same, and we'll pretend that we care about each other even when we really have no real grounds for unity. A Jesus who supposedly thinks that all religions are basically good as long as they're promoting love and social harmony. Until you come to John 14, chapter 6. Where he says, I'm the only way you can know God. Only through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot know the real God. You cannot have a relationship with my Father at all unless you come through me. They present us a Jesus who basically gets behind whatever the cultural elite think is okay for our views of sexuality, our views of gender, as long as no one's being hurt or offended. This slice of Jesus stands there in the middle of the street, virtue signaling with all the passion of an angry university protester, saying, he who has no sin, let him be the first to cast the first stone. 
But to maintain that view of Jesus, you have to make sure you don't read the next few verses later where Jesus turns to the woman caught in sexual sin and says to her, go and from now on sin no more. Jesus didn't forgive her or anyone else just for the heck of it. He forgave her and us to make us holy. He's got a reason and purpose for it in mind. You see, the scriptures demand that we love a whole Jesus, not a favorite slice of Jesus And here's why. Because when we love Jesus in slices, we will always deny him in slices. When we love Jesus in slices, we will always deny him in slices. When we love Jesus in slices, we always love a Jesus who looks like us and thinks like us and acts like us. A Jesus made in our own image, which is no real Jesus at all. And we deny the real one in the process. For the vast majority of us, our temptation is not going to look just like Peter's. It's going to look more devious and more subtle. It's not going to look like pressured to deny all affiliation with Jesus. Most likely in your life, no one's ever going to ask you to do that. Most likely. It's going to be pressure to adhere to a culturally approved slice of Jesus. Leaving the rest of him for those narrow-minded, less sensitive, and less tolerant generations of the past who didn't know any better. And to the extent that we do this, all that we're going to show is that we're still in love with Judas. Our passage, our passage, it doesn't end with denial. It seems to end on a very bleak note, but it doesn't end with denial. It actually ends with grace. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Somehow, the Lord was still in sight. We don't know why. We don't know if he was being transferred from one place to the next at that point. In the evening, we don't know if his trial, if there was a window open. We don't know. But somehow, Jesus turns, he looks at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? Uh, but it's, it's gushing with hope, actually. Why doesn't Peter follow after the serpent at this point, like Judas did? This right here. Because Jesus turns and looks at Peter. That's why. Jesus' glance at Peter, it's, it's full of grace. It is a grace that doesn't love Peter in slices, but loves him as he is in all of his guilt-ridden misery in order to change him, to remake him into something else. How do we know? Because Peter weeps. He repents. Verse 62 
It's actually the fruit. We're seeing here the fruit of Jesus' promise to pray for Peter earlier in verse 31. Jesus' prayer that Satan wouldn't bring Peter to full destruction is being answered right here in Peter's tears and repentance. Think about this. Christ's prayer for Peter did not mean that Peter was delivered from temptation to deny. He was tempted. Christ's prayer didn't even mean that he wouldn't go through with it. He did. Think about that. The Son of God prays for a disciple, and that disciple still sins. A grievous and great sin of denying his Savior. But Jesus' prayer is still answered through Peter's repentance and restoration. And that means that we have to stop thinking about our lives as a sin versus holiness basketball game. As though our lives are determined by points scored on both sides. Because God doesn't look down at our lives and measure our sin by how many times it's happened versus the victory points we score when we avoid temptation. Instead, this whole affair demonstrates that God's lenses for looking at our relationship to sin is one of Christ-likeness. For those of us who are in Jesus, God even uses our sin and failures to make us more like Christ, to draw us more unto Christ, to give us a greater hunger for Christ, and a greater hatred for that which steals our humanity. God even uses our great failures to then help us strengthen our brothers and sisters in the faith later. This was true for Peter. This was true for Paul. Jesus promised Peter that he's going to do exactly that. Paul speaks of how God does those types of things in all of our lives in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The great reformer John Calvin writes that it was precisely Jesus' look at Peter that gave Peter the grace to stop his flood of denials. Calvin thinks that Peter, he would have just kept doing it. He would have just continued in an indefinite string of denials until his heart had been made like that of Judas if Jesus hadn't looked at it. David says something similar in Psalm 30, which Brian read for us earlier. Like Peter at the beginning of our story, David had become self-dependent. David writes in verse 6 of Psalm 30, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. I'm ready to go to prison with you, Lord. Death, if I need to, I won't be moved. But you, God, hid your face. I was dismayed. Ultimately, though, Psalm 30 is a psalm of David crying out to God for his mercy, and the Lord delivers him, turns him back to himself in this psalm, just as he does with Peter. And Peter does the same thing here. He cries for sorrow and shame, and he cries for repentance and renewal, and it comes to him. Why? Because his his weeping was so convincing and so genuine? No. But because Jesus gives to Peter here what the Father will soon deny to Jesus. 
Jesus turns his face to Peter here with a saving glance full of grace, only because when it's time for Jesus to suffer for Peter's sin on the cross, the Father is not going to look upon the Son. He's going to turn away. And it's this love that snatches Peter from the serpent. And it reaches for you and it reaches for me too. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we give you thanks for being a God who doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves in the midst of the serpent but a God who has been gracious and has turned his face to us. You have turned your face to us and you have done it through Christ. You have done it by sending him to do all that we couldn't do for ourselves, giving us life to begin with, and then again and again and again for your children, you turn your face to us through him, by the Spirit, calling us back to repentance, calling us back to renewal, not letting us continue in a state of denial even as we struggle. You are gracious, O Lord. Your anger is but for a little while, but your grace and your mercy are for thousands upon thousands of generations. You are that God. You have always been that God and you are still today. And so we thank you that through Jesus we can know you as our loving Father. Father, we pray now, even as we come to this table, that you would use these very simple and ordinary elements of bread and wine to continue to call our hearts, to help us to see the face of Jesus, help us see his face looking at us at this table. And loving us with a whole love, a full love, not one in slices. Seeing us for all that we are. Loving us as we are and yet holding out the promise of making us something more and different in himself by the Spirit. Father, do these things for us in Christ's name. Amen.